buttons. Okay, before I say anything, um, before I say anything, I hear noise. Can you put the speaker in front of you? You're going to hear a terrible feedback. <clears throat> we just put it you on, the floor, on the chair over there. It's on the very delicate. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. I understand. As long as I'm behind it, I'm okay. Ladies over here, I feel bad for you, old boy. <laughs> you know, at the chasana, when you're right under the speaker, you know what I mean? Okay, anyway, I, I, before I start, I have to say something. I had pre-COVID, I used to do this thing called go around to different communities, and I, I was, I've had the opportunity to be in many, many communities. And I have to share with you, you guys have something unique and beautiful going on here. Um, it really is the warmth, the achtas. It's almost the perfect, perfect storm. What I mean by that is, I spent 12 years in Rochester. Rochester is a very, very, it's a, it's a nice town, but you don't have enough people to be a Kehillah. Or you have the Chicago's, the Baltimore's, the New York, which are, aren't a Kehillah, because it's just, <clears throat> this is a beautiful sort of mix, where you have enough people here that are really growing and accomplishing, and you have a Rav who's... Uh, whose warmth and, and is just incredible, and a team together. Um, if we could just get rid of the echo, the sound, the thing, then I'd be happy. But, <laughs> if, if we could. If we could. Do I ask so much? By the way, I usually, this is not a joke, wherever I travel, I bring my own speakers. I trust people's conscience but not their speakers, <laughs> you know? You didn't do it this time, right? No, I didn't. Uh, mistake. <laughs> All right, see, right. But he brings his own mic also. I don't do that, though. I don't speakers. Okay. We're good? I'm going to speak. Okay. Okay, so the topic this evening, as you understand, is um, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. Now, I want to, uh, ahead of time, I'm not saving you from reading the book. We're not going to get to all 10. I'll be happy if we get the three, four, five max. So, but hopefully we'll get enough done that'll be uh, you'll gain something from this. <coughs> Let's begin. The Gemara tells us that probably the greatest shalom bias in the course of history was Avram and Sarah. The Moral says in the course of history there was never a couple that were more bonded, more connected, more joined than Avram and Sarah. And that's interesting because <coughs> when Vayera opens up. We're told that Avram runs out, he sees the three angels on the horizon, he runs out, bows down, full face in the sand, al not ta'avar, please do not pass. He welcomes them in, he prepares a lavish meal, he stands over them like a waiter. And then one of the malachim say to him, Aye Sara Ishtecha, where's Sarah your wife? Now, if you think about it, that's a little bit inappropriate. Here the man welcomes you in, gives you food, gives you beverage, and you start asking, where's your wife? Like, Excuse me? And Rashi points out, Malachi Hasharis Hayu. These weren't regular Malachim, the highest level of Malachim. Yodim Hayu Hefa Sarahaya. They knew exactly where Sarimena was. Why did they ask, Where is Sarah your wife? Because Avram was going to answer, Inehi Ba'oel, she's in the oil. Kidela to make her more beloved in his eyes. He would explain that she isn't in the public light. She's not out there. She's a tznua. By saying those words, he would greater appreciate his wife. <clears throat> he would love her more. And that's what Rashi says. Okay. Now, folks, I'd like to ask you the obvious question. What is the single obstacle to a successful marriage? The single greatest obstacle to a successful marriage is... When the world begins and ends in my Dalit Amos, when I am utterly, completely self-centered... Obviously, I'm a difficult person to be married to. These people have the best marriage, again, probably in the course of history. Two completely other-centered people. Two people who are completely devoted to, to the other with incredible sensitivity, incredible love. Why did the Malachim feel they had to make her more beloved in his eyes? That's number one. But let's follow the storyline a little bit. Sorry, Emanuel hears from the other side of the oil. The bracha that this time next year Sarah will have a child. Tishat Sarah Bekirba. Sarah laughs inward, saying, 
<coughs> how could this be? How could this be? <coughs> my husband is old. I physically can't have children, Sarah says, and my husband Avram is too old. Says Hashem to Avram, why did Sarah say that she's too old to have children? And Rashi picks up on the point that that's not what Sarah said. Sarah said, I physically can't have children, and my husband is too old. Yet Hashem changes it and says that Sarah said that she was too old. Rashi explains why did Hashem change. You're allowed to life shalom bias in order that there be peace. You're allowed to change the truth. Hashem changed the truth. Sarah said that Avram's too old. Hashem didn't want to say the words that Sarah said you're too old. He wanted to keep shalom bias, and therefore Hashem changed the words. Okay, now, ladies and gentlemen, Avram Avinu did not grow up in a youth-centered culture. He did not grow up in an environment where <clears throat> he was incredibly accomplished, incredibly proud of who he was. At this stage, he has at least 75 more years of life. Let's say Hashem said that Sarah said, you're too old. I may, Sarah called me an old man. <laughs> I don't think they would have been squabbling and quibbling and quarreling. Why did Hashem have to change? My Rebbe Roshuzetzal asked that question on this Rashi, why did it have to change? And I'd like to see if we can answer these two questions. Why, number one, the Malachim felt they had to make her more beloved in his eyes. Number two, why did Hashem have to change the words and not dare say that Sarah said, you're too old? Okay, so to do this, let's begin our little course of studying this institution called marriage. Okay, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, what is the biggest cause of divorce today? Anybody? The biggest cause of divorce today? I'm sorry? Money. Money. Good. Money is a good one. Anyone else? The little kids getting married. Okay. Your kids getting married? You? Money is a good one. Anyone for in-laws? Uh, about religion? He's too religious. She's too religious. Uh, anybody else? Burnt the food, that's a, that's a good one. Okay, I'd like to share with you, the biggest cause of divorce today is not in-laws, not kids, not religion, not whether you use the toothpaste from the end or the front. The biggest cause of divorce today is fighting. Fighting. I can say, Rabbi, of course fighting. What are they fighting about? Fighting about the in-laws and the religion and the money and etc. Nope, not true at all. It's never the issue it's always how the couple deals with the issue. And I'll prove to you my point. Studies show that 70% of successful marriages have at least one irreconcilable difference. An irreconcilable difference means a, rec a, a difference that can't be reconciled. For instance, he has a business in New York. She has severe allergies and needs to live in San Diego. Chicago doesn't cut it for either one. He wants to bring the kids up Hasidish. And she wants to bring them up like this. You can't send the kids with low and curly payas on one side to school. Right? <laughs> An irreconcilable difference means there is no reconciliation. 70% of successful marriages have at least one, if not more, irreconcilable differences, and yet they're successfully married. Because it's never the issue, it's how the couple deals with the issue, how they get along, how they deal with it, my way, your way. We find a way as long as we're in this together. And I'd like to share with you something that may be obvious, but it bears repeating. The single biggest ingredient in the success of your marriage is the bond of love, the connection, <clears throat> the attachment one to another. Because if you're friends who love each other, and you're in this together, you find a way. If you're not, you don't find a way. And you see, Hollywood got it 100% right. 100% right, except backwards. In the world of Hollywood, we fell in love, so we got married. Then we fell out of love, and we got unmarried. In the world we come from, I don't marry this person because I love her. I marry this person because I believe that Hashem found for me the perfect one, the right one. And that's the criteria I use to choose. But if you do not develop and maintain a powerful bond of love and connection in your marriage, you will be toast. John Gottman is one of the leading researchers now in marriage. He has a study. He can determine with 94% accuracy whether a couple that sees him will be divorced within five years or not. 94% accuracy. And he describes his system. <clears throat> he brings him into what he calls his lab. 
He sits them in two chairs facing each other, and he asks them to discuss three topics. One is a neutral topic, <clears throat> one is a topic about family, and the other one is what he calls a flashpoint, something that they typically argue about. And he measures everything, respiration, pulse, <clears throat> he has them on specially wired chairs, and he videotapes the entire 15-minute interview. And then he looks back on the interview, and he's looking for one thing, contempt. Contempt is not hatred, it's that sort of rolling of the eyes like... <sighs> if he finds one sign of contempt without five positive signs corresponding to it, that couple is heading for disaster unless they change course. Why? Because contempt is the opposite of love. It's the opposite of respect. If there isn't love and there isn't respect in your marriage, you will be toast. And the very great secret, which should be obvious but unfortunately isn't, is that while we don't choose the person because of love, developing love, maintaining love is the key and vital for every marriage. And I believe that's exactly what this Rashi is sharing with us. The Malachim felt, you gave us something, we want to give something back. <clears throat> Avram and Sarah might have been at 99.9% .9 almost perfect marriage, but there's more that could be added. There's more that could be added to make them more beloved. They overstepped their bounds. The Malachim asked a question that might not have been so tznius. Where's your wife? Why? Because Shalom Bayis requires constant infusions of energy, <clears throat> constant renewal. They wanted to make her more beloved to give him a gift. And my Rebbe Rashiv Zasal answered the second Rashi, do you know why Hashem changed? Avram Avinu would not have been destroyed. I very sorry called me an old man. <laughs> but there might have been the slightest, slightest scratch on a near-perfect marriage. And Shalom Bayis is so kadosh, so important, so holy, and that it's worthy, Hashem says, to be mashana, if you excuse my expression, to lie. The chosim of a Kaddish Baruch Hu is emes, Hashem felt it was worthy to change the truth so that not to, on any slight level, stare at this marriage. And I think this is a tremendous yesod. And the single greatest part of a successful marriage is love. If you've got love, you have a chance. If not, you don't. Okay. Here we go. You ready? I get the phone call. I get the phone call, and it's not the first time, not the tenth time, not the hundredth time. Rabbi Shaver, thank you so much for taking the call. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to help. Well, it's my husband. Okay. Uh, he's a great guy, and, um, and, and he learns, and he dominates, and he's good with the kids, and he's responsible. I say, well, sounds pretty good so far. What's, what's the problem? The problem is, the problem is I, I, I don't love him. I don't love him. Okay. So what do you do? What do you do when you get the phone call? So I'll tell you what I do. It's what I do every time. I say, madam, <clears throat> let me ask you a question. Last month... How many times did you and your spouse go out? But going out, I don't mean to bar mitzvah or to wedding or to... I mean, how many times did you and your husband go out as a couple to just spend time together? We didn't. Uh, the month before that? No. <clears throat> the month before that? No. The month before that? The month before that? I have to stop at about seven or eight because I know what the answer is. And I say to her, Madam, I'd like to share with you the obvious. You and your husband are not bonding, you're not connecting, you're not spending time together. And if you don't connect, if you don't spend time together, guess what? You're going to be like two ships in the night. You're going to pass, but you're going to have no connection. But Rabbi, we share so much in common. We have the same ashkafas. We want to bring up the children the same way. We, and we spend so much time talking about the kids. And, 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 and it, I said, that's very, very nice. And that's wonderful. But if you're not bonding, if you're not connecting as a couple, then guess what? The bond of love is going to start eroding, you're going to start separating, you're going to start going different ways, and before you know it, you're going to be in different planets, different universes. And I said to her, what you have to do is you have to start a date night. And this is, Amaisa Shahaya, this is, I'm not making this up, I couldn't make this up. I said, you have to go out with your husband, you spend you know, for three, four hours, and I just want you to talk. And she says to me, talk? Yeah, I said, you talk for, you know, you go out for two, three hours, you talk. What would we talk about for two, three hours? I said, uh-huh, got it. Uh -huh. Ladies and gentlemen, let me be very clear. If you're not working on the bond, the connection, the, the romantic part of your marriage, guess what? In the busyness of life, you're going to start separating, you're going to start being in different parts of the world, and your life is going to be very, very different. And I almost, I almost laugh at myself for saying this at this point in my career. 
I tell people on a regular basis words that I know they're not going to listen to. You have to go out once a week. You have to have a date night once a week. That means going out. Going out means going out of the house and having a date night. Now, why do I wonder why I still say these words? Because the pushback that I get, you would think that I'm telling people they have to climb Mount Everest. They have to, I don't know what. I can't tell you the amount of pushback I get when I tell couples they have to go out. How, how I can't afford it, and the babysitter is so difficult to get, and my husband just started a new job. How could it? We're way too busy. Okay. So I have an answer to every one of those titles. It's very expensive to go out, right? Good. How much does a divorce attorney, alimony, and uh, you know the settlements, how much does that cost? Your husband's so busy, he's starting a new business. What about running two families and, and figuring out the custody issues and which kid's going to be who by where? Figure that one out, whether that's going to be better for your time. If you'd like to understand the single easiest, cheapest, best investment you can make in your marriage is going out once a week. But it doesn't stop there. Going out means going out. Going out means spending time, but it's also it's a love notes, it's a text. I hate to say this, it's not a base manager, sometimes I get nervous saying this, but I'm going to say this anyway. A husband and wife are supposed to be having an ongoing love affair with each other, but that requires fostering, requires time, it requires attention, it requires doing all the things that you used to do as chasen and kala, those you did it intuitively, you knew exactly what to do, just keep doing it, Rav Pam Zatzal used to say, the courtship must continue. And this is the first of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. They stop working on the romance, stop working on the attachment, stop working on the connection. But just a quick aside before we make any mistake. Whose responsibility is it? Whose job is it to plan the date? Ladies? <laughs> okay. So gentlemen, let me make this as clear as I can. If you would like to be a happy individual... If you would like to enjoy life, it is your responsibility to romance your wife. It is your responsibility to plan the date. Ladies, you're responsible for the childcare, the babysitting, whatever. Gentlemen, it is your job to... I, listen, Rabbi, I'll go out anytime she wants. All she got to do is tell me what restaurant, tell me what place, and I'll go. I'll be there, right? I say, fellow, you blew it. You blew it. 90% of Shalom bias issues are solved if one thing happens, if a woman feels that her husband loves her. 90% of Shalom bias problems are solved if a woman knows that her husband puts her first, if a woman feels that her husband really cares, if she feels cherished, if she feels loved, 90% of Shalom bias problems are solved. But, ladies, before we go pointing it's all the guy's fault, let me be honest, there's some things that women do that make it difficult for the husband to like them, let alone love them. Um, and let me be, let's start with one. This is out of order, but you'll excuse me for saying this. I have a firm belief. Every kala, as she walks down the chuppah, has a 10-point home improvement plan. It's all planned out. And that guy under the chuppah is the recipient of the 10 points of home improvement. Now, she behaves herself during the Shev Bracha. She's not going to start. But it starts about a week after the wedding. And she walks in, and his desk is a mess. Chaim, look at your mess. You'd be so much more efficient and effective. And she helps him clean it up, and she puts it away. And he doesn't get all warm and fuzzy. I don't know why. So it's clear that he's not getting the message. So she makes it more clear. Chaim, don't you understand? If you'd be neater, you'd be more efficient, you'd be on time, you'd learn better, you'd die you. And he doesn't get all warm and fuzzy. I guess she, he's not getting it. So she does it in a joke, and then she does it in a nagging way, and she does it in a helpful way, and she does it in a not helpful way, and he doesn't get it. Okay, so let me um, explain to you mistake number two. Don't change your spouse. Don't change your husband. Let me make it very, very clear. Um, don't change your husband means don't make him more on time, more early, more... Uh, don't do it. You know why don't do it? Don't do it because it's annoying. Don't do it because it's a lack of respect. But don't do it because it doesn't work. You know, I have this little theory. 20 years after a marriage, most marriages, they'll be okay, okay, and all of a sudden they, they start improving dramatically. Dramatic improvement. And you know what my theory is? Do you know why? Because for 20 years she tries to change him. She tries, she tries, she, finally she gives up. Ah, he's a cuss. He's never going to change anyway. And, and suddenly, I don't know why, but he suddenly he's much nicer. 
<laughs> and suddenly it's much easier to get along. I don't know why it is, but suddenly... With, uh, uh, so, <clears throat> let me make it clear. It generally applies to you also. Don't change your wife also. But ladies, please, don't don't change your husband. It's not going to work. It's going to insult him. It's going to bother him. Gonna, by the way, I once gave a marriage this marriage seminar in Brooklyn. It was a five-part. Every month they for five weeks. And the only way they could write questions in, you know, uh, on a card to, to... Okay. So after, as soon as I'm done this speech, I do my whole routine, I get a card that says, uh, Rabbi, what if we try to change him with a sense of humor? <laughs> no, I, I don't think ladies don't think it's good. It won't work. It's not good. Okay, next question. What if we try to change him with consequences? No, 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 no ladies, don't do it. It's not going to work. Really, that's not a good idea. <clears throat> really not going to work. Okay, next question comes in. <clears throat> what if we try to change him? Right, anyway, I, I thought I made my point. I said it over and over. The first email I get, the first email I get that night is, Rabbi, if we're not going to change him by being funny, if we're not going to change him with consequences, how are we going to change him? The next email, this is not a, I'm not making this stuff up. The next email says, Rabbi Schaefer, with all due respect, maybe it's not that we're not understanding your point. You made it very clear. It's that we don't agree with you. I said, Shikaya, I'll see you later. Um, okay, so let me be very clear. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Please don't. Okay, here we go. That's mistake number two. Ready for mistake number three? A couple are walking down the street. They're walking down the street, and all of a sudden, he trips. Oi vey, dear, are you okay? Are you okay, okay? Okay. Same couple, same street. We're walking down the street, he trips. What's the matter with you, klutz? What's the difference between scene one and scene two? Anyone know? Scene one is when they were chasen and kala. Scene two is after they're married three years. Okay, here we go. John Gottman, in another study, shows something very, very frightening. He shows that couples, when they speak to each other, and then he measures how they speak to others. And listen to what he does. He records them when they're speaking to each other, and then he asks the husband to leave and puts another woman in that chair, and he'll do the same, and ask the woman to leave and put another man. And so he's exploring the way people speak to each other as a couple, and the way they speak to strangers. He finds that couples, no matter the marriage, short amount of time, long amount of time, when they're speaking to a stranger, they're more polite, are more likely to receive someone else's opinion, and will argue far less if that other person is not their spouse. So, here we go to mistake number three. Mistake number three is, the Rambam shares with us a formula for Shalom Bayes. The formula is, a man has to treat his wife with love, he has to love her more than himself, but the Rambam precedes that. He has to respect her more than himself. And if I had the Lushan here, I, well, I do have the I know the Lushan. <clears throat> a man is obligated to respect, to honor his wife more than himself, the Ohava Kugufo, and love her as he does himself. You see, respect comes first. And if you're not going to work on the love in the marriage, it's going to disintegrate, you're going to fall apart, you're going to be in different parts of the world. But if you're also not going to work on the respect, it's also going to become very, very difficult. Because if I don't respect you, guess what? It's hard for me to love you, but it's a lot harder for you to love me. And I can't tell you, honestly, folks, this is, um, it's almost scary. This, this device is a very, very dangerous device. Oh, and by the way, at date night, please, this device stays home. I want to tell you a real serious show and bias problem. A couple were really, really, I finally convinced them to go out, but there was one condition. you got to leave the smartphones at home. And they both, he promised, she promised, okay, they went out. I asked her afterwards how to go. All right. I said, what do you mean? Well, she was texting all night. I said, well, you, you both agreed to leave the smartphones at home. Yeah, she brought her Blackberry. I didn't even know you could hook up a Blackberry anymore to the... She figured out a way to get it to, to communicate with the cell. And, okay, so let me make it clear. When you go out, you leave these devices home. You put them on stun or off. You don't WhatsApp. You don't TikTok. You don't chat. You don't text. You just... Connect, you spend time together. Okay, anyway, if I don't love my spouse, it's very hard for her. But number two, if I don't respect her, it's very hard for her to love me. Because if someone doesn't respect you, guess what? It's hard to love them, it's hard to really appreciate them, it makes it very difficult. So mistake number one is not working on the love in the marriage. Mistake number two is not working on the respect. Um, <clears throat> don't change your husband, I don't know where that fits in.
Where does that fit in? It's one of the stakes in there somewhere. But okay. All right, anyway, here we go. Um, you ready for this? I have to find the exact words, because these words are really, really important. Um, hmm. Yeah, here we go. I'm sorry. I apologize. Here we go. Elizabeth Newton. Elizabeth Newton earned a PhD from Stanford University for an experiment. You ready for this one? <clears throat> she created two groups of people. She called them tappers and listeners. And she gave them each a job. The tapper's job it was to tap out <clears throat> on the table a song. She gave them a list of about 25 songs, Happy Birthday, Star Spangled Banner, various songs. And their job was to tap out the tune. The listener's job was to guess the tune. What tune is it? Is it Happy Birthday, the Star Spangled Banner, etc.? Okay. Now, she then asked the tappers to predict what are the odds that the listener is going to guess it right. She asked the tappers over and over hundreds of people, and 50% of them said, almost, almost all of them said, at least 50% chance that the listener is going to get it right. Yet only 4% of the listeners ever got it right. And you have to see the videos, because when she, you see the videos, the tap is tapping out, and the listener doesn't have a clue. The tap is going, like, how could you not get it? And the listener is like, what are you? So I want to share with you why she earned a PhD. You see, when you tap out a song, you can't help but play the song in your mind. But the listener doesn't hear the song. But it's so obvious to you, because you hear the song in your mind, that how could you, how could you not get it? How could you possibly not hear the song? This is probably the single greatest obstacle to the success of any relationship. It's called being mind blind. It's called assuming that because I have a way of understanding things, you understand it as well. Because I have a way of viewing things, you view it the same way. Because I think one way, you think the same way. And being mind blind makes it impossible to be successful in any relationship. And let me share with you a good example. A young fellow, married about six months, He's coming back from Colo, and at 6.30 at night, he puts, he's about to put the key into his apartment door, and he says to himself, Baruch Hashem, I'm so happily married. I married such a grounded girl. She's so smart and intelligent and normal, not one of these flighty dames. Okay, anyway, puts the keys in the car, in the um, apartment door, <coughs> opens the apartment door, walks in, and he sees his wife up on the chair. Honey, <coughs> what's the matter? What's the matter? Honey, <coughs> what's, what's, what's the matter? There, there. What? <laughs> what? Cockroach! Uh, cockroach? Yeah! Uh-huh. So, he walks over to the cockroach. <clears throat> you can come down now. Not flighty, huh? Okay. It's scene one. Two weeks later, he's in Kolo. Snagging away. He does not even bring a cell phone into the base medrash. But a friend of his brings the phone over and says, Listen, Dover, I got your wife, something's something up, I better take the call. So he <clears throat> picks up the phone, yeah, Dover, what? Could you please come home? What's the problem? What's the problem? There are two of them, come home, please. She wants me to come home because two cockroaches. Okay, okay. He gets in his car, steam is coming out of his ears. That woman, what is wrong? He drives home, <clears throat> he climbs up the stairs to his apartment, opens the door, and there she is on a chair. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I hope you're satisfied. Turns around, walks out, gets back in his car, goes back to Seder. Okay, <clears throat> who was right? Who was right? The girl. The girl, listen, she was terrified, so maybe she's right. Maybe he's, anybody say he's right? Yes. He's right. I mean, he's learning. But for two stupid cockroaches, you want me to come home? Okay. The answer is, the question is wrong. Right or wrong is an important question to ask in a court of law. Maybe a divorce court. But if you're going to ask the question if you're right in your marriage, you're going to be very unhappily married. <clears throat> because this is the great secret of life. You see... He and she have a very different version of what is going on. To him, it's a stupid bug. To her, it's terrifying. By the way, you want to see what really happens? Let's switch things around a little bit. You're saying it's 
Exactly, exactly. It's subjective to both. Mind blind means I assume the way I view things, the way I feel, the way I think is the only way, and of course you view it that way as well. By the way, if you want to play it out, let's see how it would play out in his world. You see, I have four daughters and two sons. I don't know why it is, but the girls are always afraid of bugs. The guys aren't. Usually the girls have to call when a baby brother's a bug just to make sure he doesn't eat the bug, you know. Okay, I don't know why, but for some reason in my family anyway, the girls are afraid of bugs. Guys aren't. But watch this. Let's change the scene a little bit. Let's assume it was him in the apartment, but instead of two cockroaches, it was two German shepherds. Would he be up on the chair? No. He'd be out the fire. He'd be down the block somewhere. Because two German shepherds are scary. You see, his mistake is assuming that the way he views things, the way he thinks, is the way she thinks. And by the way, you should know she's also making a little bit of a mistake. Because she got very, very miffed, very upset, as cool, callous, cruel way of dealing. And he and she both were not able to jump into the other's mind. So now I'd like to share with you the two most important words in your marriage. What are the two most important words in your marriage? Anyone know? Yes. Sorry is a good one. Yes, dear is a good one. Anyone else? Some good. Can we, can we give some? Anybody? Two most important words in your marriage? You what? You're right. Yeah. By the way, the hardest words are you're wrong. You know, I can say you're right. I, I was. You ever notice? Your teeth start chattering in use. I can't say a word. I was wrong. But it's not the most important words. Not, not thank you. Not I was wrong. Not you were right. Um, I love you is three words. That's not going to make it either. Okay, you ready for this? I'm going to share with you in a moment. <clears throat> Every scientific discovery was preceded by an expression. That expression was, that's strange. You see, a guy took two beakers and mixed the chemicals together, expected X, but instead of X found Y, and he said the words, that's strange. Almost every scientific experiment, almost every scientific Discovery was preceded by the words, that's strange. If you'd like to know the most important words in your marriage, it's the words, that's strange. When he came home, and he seen her up on the chair and said to himself, that's strange, he might have been able to climb out of his world and understand her. You see, that strange means I'm looking at something that's mighty curious. I'm looking at something that doesn't make sense from my perspective. That's strange let me understand, why would my spouse, who's normally grounded, who's normally <clears throat> a, a fine put together, why would she be reacting that way? That strange opened you up to the possibility that maybe your version of reality is not really what's going on. And again, <clears throat> the words that strange said to yourself, please do me a favor, do not say it to your spouse. That's strange, God, yeah, you're going to go real far. No, don't do it. But if you say to yourself, that's strange, and let me explain to you what I mean. Next time your husband says something that's really nasty, cruel, and insensitive, before you react, say to yourself, that's strange. He's a nice guy. I know he's a nice guy. He's so considerate. He really cares about me. I know that. Why would he say something so heartless? And when you ask the question, that's strange, you might well begin to understand that he's dealing with a different reality, he understands things differently, he relates to things differently, and you might actually begin to understand where your spouse is coming from. So if mistake number one is not working on the love in the marriage, mistake number two is trying to change your spouse, mistake number three is not working on the respect, mistake number four is being mind-blind. Mind-blind means I assume my reality defines, <clears throat> the experience that I experience defines reality, and it's very dangerous, it's very wrong, and it's something that really requires a lot of focus on. Okay, and now we're ready for the big question. What is the single most important criteria for a successful relationship? What is it that a relationship absolutely, positively must have and must be there for a relationship to be good? Anyone? I'm sorry? Communication. Communication. Communication, right? Everyone agree? Communicate. Ladies, do you agree? Communication, everyone agree? No? You agree, you go like this. You don't know if you go. <clears throat> that's, a, that's, you know, yeah, or no, no. Ladies, communication, important or not important? Yeah, good. Gentlemen, communication, important or not important? Trust. Yeah. One second. Guys, um, communication, 
Or <laughs> communication is important. You're not seeing any. Oh, you know what you just saw? Tom Houston is a psychiatrist, and he studied 264 couples in depth. And he asked them this question: What is the single most important ingredient for a successful relationship? And he found almost everyone agreed communication. That means all the women agreed, and almost none of the husbands said that. Almost all the women said <coughs> communication, and not a single husband. In fact, there was another psychologist who reported something amazing. She's a marriage therapist, and she said she was talking to the husband, <coughs> and, and she asked the husband to describe his marriage, and he said the best part of marriage is we could be sitting on the couch, maybe we're holding hands, not holding hands, we're reading, I just feel so close to her. And then she brought the woman in, and she asked the woman to describe what was going on. We could sit there on the couch, maybe holding hands, maybe not holding hands, and he doesn't say a word. I want to hit the guy over the head. I want to smack him. I want to just... Okay, so let me let you in on a little secret. Men and women, you ready for this? <clears throat> men and women, take a deep breath. Men and women are different. I know that's a big finish, right? right? By the way, it is a big finish. Because everyone knows that men and women are so different until they get married. Everyone knows that men and, and women are so different until they get married and expect their husband to be like them, their wife to be like them. So let me share with you something very, very basic. Communication is very, very important for women, usually nowhere near as important for men. But I want to share something very, very key, why this is. The next time you go to a kiddush, I want you to try this sociological experiment. I want you to listen carefully to the conversation on this side of Mechitza, and then listen carefully to the conversation on this side of Mechitza. Let's begin. You hear the women's side of the mechitza, and you hear a conversation sounds like this. Oh. Now let's go to this side of mechitza. Hey, great talk, Nechaim. You ever notice that women make listening noises, listening sounds? Oh, ooh, ah, really? Oh, ooh, ah, ah. You can, I, I don't know the dictionary, but it's incredible. <laughs> if you need a lexicon, like, oh, okay. Record it, by the way, record it one time. Okay, so let me share with you something that's very, very interesting. Deborah Tannen is a social anthropologist. She studies people. She studies cultures. She did a tremendous amount of studies about the difference between men and women in conversation. And here's what she discovered. Men and women talk about different things, talk about things for different reasons, <clears throat> express them differently, listen differently. And here's the great secret. Men, women typically speak to share, to connect, to bond. Guys typically speak to communicate, to share ideas and approaches. And let me share with you the mistake that I made for at least, I don't know, eight, nine, maybe ten years. Okay, my mother would call me. I would call her. Actually, I was a, a, a bench. I would call her and I, every week and from yeshiva, and she'd always ask me that most difficult question that every mother seems to ask her yeshiva, but her son, what's new? What's new? Uh, Ma, we learned the new tosis. We just got into the marshal. We're stuck on the ksos. It's havmina. Uh, what's new? So I would say, what's new? Uh, not much. No, but what's what's new? Uh, I don't know. Do you understand? It took me twenty years to understand what my mother was asking for. It was her son who was in yeshiva. She wanted to connect. She wanted to be part of his life. And women connect. They share. They give over. They tell to connect, to bond. Typically, guys don't do that. Guys communicate ideas. Guys communicate to give over information. So gentlemen and ladies, let me bring it clear to both sides. Let's start with the gentleman. Gentlemen, if you would like to be happily married, raise your hand if you want to be miserable. Now, let's be honest. Anybody want to be really, really unhappy? <clears throat> really miserable? I guarantee. You know, a happy wife is a happy life. A miserable wife? Uh-uh. Don't go there. So let's assume that no one raised their hand. So therefore you want to be happily married, right? Yeah? Oh, like this going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, here's the great Yisod. 90% of your Shalom bias, 90% is based on this one Yisod. If your wife feels that she's cherished, if she feels that she's loved. The stipler writes in Nigeris, if a woman doesn't feel that her husband loves her, it's Korov the Pikuach Nefesh. 
It's close to murder. But here's the great problem. The way you express love and the way your wife is looking for signs of love might very well be different. The biggest thing that a guy has to learn is how to share, how to communicate, how to sit with her. And when she, <clears throat> ladies, not these women here, but sometimes ladies fetch, not, not these women, but sometimes, and this took me, this was the hardest thing. I was a high school Rebbe for 15 years. And a big part of the job of a Rebbe is to give aids. And the guys would come over to me and ask questions, life questions. Whenever a guy would ask me a question, I would sit, I'd discuss it. And invariably, the guys were happy. They felt I, I gave a good answer, good advice. I gave a good direction. And I felt, okay, good. And as the years went on, I noted the following. Whenever guys would ask me questions, I was able somehow to answer their questions well, to give them a good direction, good advice. And then I'd come home. And whenever my wife would ask me for advice, she was never happy. She was never, like any answer I gave her, any advice I gave her, it was like a zero. It was like a, an F. It was like a, a negative. And what I, I don't get it. And you see, I'm such a smart guy. I cross the threshold, my, my IQ drops 80 points. Like, well, like, what happened? And it took me 20 years. This is not, a, I'm a, not the brightest, I guess, not the quickest learner. But it took me 20 years to realize why. She wasn't looking for my advice. She wanted me to listen. She wanted me to be empathetic. She wanted me to just say, uh-huh, I hear, that must be hard. Well, why don't you just change it? Why don't you stop doing it? No. Oh, it must be really hard. Oh. You know that video with the nail in the head? Yeah, about the nail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you... Right, guys, isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? From a male perspective, it is absolutely insane. Ladies, what do you want your husband to do? I don't know, ladies, but... If you'll just listen, I just want to share, I want to connect, I want to be, feel I can be comfortable and share with you. So, let me be very clear. Gentlemen, if you'd like to be happily married, you have to learn to connect, to bond, and often that means by communicating, that means speaking. Chazanish says before you leave, you tell your wife where you're going, you tell your wife where you come back, you share with her the details, and more than anything, you learn to listen. Listen means what? This is another one, this study is amazing. They took two guys put them into a room, two chairs, and said, if you want to talk, you can talk. If you don't want to talk, you don't want to talk. Just, <clears throat> we ask you to spend two minutes there. They did this with about 100 guys, and they did the same with 100 women. This is what they found. The guys would stand there, would sit there, each on the chair. The chairs were facing this way, and they would sometimes talk, sometimes not talk. The women, as soon as they would get into the room, the chairs would begin facing each other. Do you ever notice that when women talk, they face each other? I have daughters. I've watched my daughters on the couch. And one time, my eighth grade daughter... She was once on the couch. She was on this side. Her friend was on the other side. I thought they were like madly in love. They were like having this intimate conversation. They were, eight, they were 12 years old. Okay, anyway. When women talk, they look at each other's face. They, guys talk. They'd be fishing. I'm looking this way. He's looking that way. It's, guys speak very differently. And one of the great secrets of being successfully married is you have to learn how to communicate the way your spouse wants you to communicate. Mistake number one is not working on the bond, the love, the attachment. Mistake number two is not working on the respect. Mistake number three is trying to change your spouse. This mistake is not understanding that men and women need different things in a conversation. I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous yesod. When the Malachim said to Avram, Avram and Sarah had a near-perfect marriage, but there was more that could be added. Because it needs constant infusion. If you want to be happily married, you have to go out, you have to spend time together, you have to connect, and you have to do the things that lovers do because that's what a marriage needs. And the minute you're going to say, I'm too busy or whatever, then you're saying, I'm just willing to be unhappy. <clears throat> but number two, you have to know that respect is as important as love. And respect is a different to men and different to women. Ladies, please don't change your husband. Uh, so there was a woman here who told me, I, I told this story, I, I, I'm going to repeat it, it's so worth telling over. I was in Chicago, and I was speaking on Shalom Bias, and a woman said to me, Rabbi, do you remember you were here two years ago? I said, I remember. She said, do you remember what you spoke about? I said, I didn't. And she told me what I spoke about. I spoke about the socks on the floor. Okay, here's the story. A woman calls me up, and she says, I don't know what to do with the guy. He's 40 years old and he leaves his socks on the floor. I scream at him, I yell at him, and it doesn't change. What's wrong with the guy? Okay. So I said to ma'am, have you ever said this to me before? Have you ever mentioned to before that his socks on the floor? Yeah. Did it work? No. When you let, raise the volume, did it work? No. Did you raise it again, did it work? I have a little secret to tell you. 
he absolutely 100% should be a mensch and pick up his socks. No question about it. He's 40 years old. Get your act together, guy. Do it. But guess what? He's not doing it. Now you have a choice. You either, either embrace your spouse as he is or you suffer. Whatever the, which reason, <clears throat> that's not easy for him. Maybe he's by nature sloppy. Maybe he's an ADHD personality type. But whatever the point, he's not going to change. Your choice is either to embrace him as he is or suffer. Now, I told her that story, and a woman said, Do you remember that two years ago you were here and you told that story? I said, I don't. She, I, she said, that story changed my marriage. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, every night my husband would come home from work, take off his jacket, and leave it on the dining room chair. Sunday night, it would be one jacket. Monday night, the second jacket. Tuesday night, the third jacket. By Thursday, his entire wardrobe was in the dining room. I said, what used to happen? I used to scream at him, he used to yell at him. Now what happens? Sunday night, he puts a jacket on a chair, I take it upstairs. Monday night, he puts it down, I take it upstairs. How's your Shalom bias now? It's fantastic. I made the women in that room stand up and cheer, clap. Why doesn't he just put his things away? He's, isn't he a mensch? He's an adult, can't he just get it together? The answer is, guess what? He doesn't. And you have a choice. You're either going to embrace your spouse as your spouse is, or you're going to suffer. And by the way, this has a corollary. I had a fellow at a Shabbaton who came over to me and said, Rabbi, I have a problem. It's my wife. <laughs> I knew that was going on. I have a problem. It's my wife. What's the problem? Listen, I'm a doctor. <clears throat> I work in the ER, and there are a lot of young nurses. They're all slim. My wife, she, we have three kids, and she put on, put on some weight. Now, I, I knew the woman, I saw her, and she wasn't obese, but she, definitely, she had 40 pounds. Okay, first kid a little bit of weight, second kid a little more, didn't take, okay. So, but Rabbi, I don't understand. I offered to pay for, for a personal trainer. I offer all kinds of nutrition, and she just won't do it. What am I going to do? How am I going to get her to change? So what did I say to him? I said, young man, <clears throat> I want you to hear what I'm saying to you. I don't know of a woman alive who looks in the mirror and says, oh, 40 pounds overweight. That's great. I'm so happy. Wow. So why doesn't she just go on a diet or exercise? The answer is because right now she's got a lot on her plate and a lot's going on and it's not going to happen. It should happen. You should demand it. It should absolutely, but it's not going to happen. Even though you want it and even though she wants it. And at this moment you have a choice to make. You either embrace her as she is or you suffer because you are not going to be a happy person. In any case, this is a major, major So You see, there are three pillars to a successful marriage. Commitment. Commitment means I know that Hashem chose the right one for me and I'm committed to this. Love in the marriage is the glue. That's what keeps everything together. It's the third pillar that gives us the most trouble. The third pillar is learning to live together. And many couples are committed Many couples love each other, but this learning to live together part isn't so simple. And the first you saw it in learning to live together is that my experience doesn't define reality. If I'm not scared of bugs, it doesn't mean my wife is not scared of bugs. If it doesn't bother me, if I would say this kind of line, it might bother my husband. And there's a woman I know I can't help them. I, there's nothing I can do. She's not horrible, but she's a little bit gruff. A little bit gruff. And it bothers her husband immensely. It bothers him. So I try to tell him, you've got to learn to accept it. But he can't. He can't. So I try to tell her, maybe you could be a little bit kind, a little bit nice. I'm not gruff. I'm not. If you're unable, unwilling to climb out of your experience and recognize that your spouse experiences things differently, you're not going to be successfully married. And I think this chazal is one of the greatest illustrations of it. As my Rebbe Rishiv Zetzal explained, <clears throat> the Shalom Bayis was so important that Mishana, Hashem changed. Hashem didn't dare say the words that Sora said that she's, that you're too old. It wouldn't have destroyed Avram in any sense. It would have made a slight, slight scratch. And that's enough for Hashem to change because Shalom Bayis is holy. Shalom Bayis is Kodesh, but it requires work. The first work is the easy work, going out, spending time together. <clears throat> the second part is the more difficult. And that's learning to live together. The first you sow there is learning the words, that's strange. When my husband, when my wife does something, you say to yourself, that's strange. You open yourself up to the possibility that maybe they're different than you. 
And I want to close with one story that I think encapsulates a marriage the way I understand it. My Rebbe, the Rashiva Tzal, was ill for much of his adult life, and he was older than the Rebbe and everyone knew the inevitable that he was going to pass away before the Rebbe did, but that's not what happened. The Rebbe took ill, and very shortly thereafter, she passed away. And the Rashiva stood up to say a hesped for his wife. Now you have to understand that we were been biased by the Rashiva. The Rashiva Tzal never had children, and the Talmudim were biased. I was very close to the Rashiva, and I was in that house on a regular basis. I heard my Rebbe stand up and say these words. I said a hesped, I said a eulogy for my father. I said a hesped for my mother. I cannot say a hesped for my wife. If I say a hesped for my wife, it's like I'm saying a hesped for myself. And with those words, he sat down. And with those words, he defined what a marriage is. Together, one unit, bonded, other issues, other things, yeah. But we're in this together. You work on the bond, you work on the connection, you learn to experience life from someone else's perspective. You open your mind to realize that the way I experience things is my experience. It doesn't define reality. You work together as friends, you work together in love, you learn to understand each other, and Hashem helps, and you have a beautiful marriage. And Hashem grant you much, much bracha. Before I end, I must say, um, we got to four out of the ten really dumb mistakes. There are six more. Um, I really urge you to grab a copy of this book. It's not for sale yet in stores. It's coming out of Mitzvah Shem Chanukah time. They're still in Bulgaria on a ship bound for New York. It's not a joke. These are Amazon, um, what do you call it, print? These are Amazon print-on-demand. I urge you to, this book, I can't, we put out, we sent out about a thousand um, pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, to, <coughs> to Chosin Akala teachers. I've rave, rave reviews. I cannot tell you how many Chosin Akala teachers tell me, I need copies, semi-copies, buy 20 copies, 40 copies, I have to give it out. It's been very well received before it hit the market. I, I really urge you, please take a copy. The, those who sponsored the, uh, the Shabbos, I thank you very much, and you'll get a copy as a gift. If you haven't been a sponsor, you can sponsor future events and get your free copy. In the meantime, you can purchase a copy. <laughs> They're in the back. They're $25. You can either leave the cash or check or, or make, I don't know, send me a picture of your credit card. You just take it. Do me if it. Take it. And you know what's going to happen. The lady's going to read it, and the guys are not going to. <laughs> right? Why do I, right? Okay. Thank you very much. Much, much. Let's